Hi, I'm David Helvarg. I'm an author and founder of Blue Frontier, which is an ocean conservation and a policy group that uh, wants to know more about what the OG, the original scientists in marine uh, science are doing these days and, and what lessons can they teach us. That's why I'm going to Lab Oratory Podcast to just find out who they are, what they're saying, and, you know, how they're helping to turn the tide. Welcome back to Lab Oratory Podcast. This is our first of two Ocean Science Meeting specials. So Sam, this was your first scientific conference that you've gone to. What did you think? I thought it was exhilarating. I thought that everyone I met had such passion. It was great to see that amongst scientists, artists, and everyone and anyone in between. Um, it was great to talk about the ocean with all of these knowledgeable people and to learn from them and learn about the vast reaches of things that I hadn't even thought to think about. It was quite the undertaking, and I was super impressed. What did you think? It really hit home for me, I think mainly because I'm in this transitionary time between working for an institution and hopefully going to pursue my PhD, it was great to see folks of all different backgrounds, of all different skill levels and knowledge levels being so excited about their work. Whether we talked to somebody who was an undergraduate, a postdoc, or a senior scientist, everybody was so excited with what they were learning about during the conference and who they had the chance to interact with. So it was nice to see that excitement amongst everyone. Yeah, it was definitely a good crew, and I'm looking forward to, A, attending more conferences, B, seeing if this type of passion lives on at other conferences, too. We're coming for you. <laughs> All right, so... So, while we were at the conference, we took the opportunity to interview as many people as we could to get a wide variety of who attended this conference, what types of people were presenting, who was all invited, or who found themselves in the room. And today's episode, we are going to focus on two categories of folks, people who identify as artists, scientists, and folks who were presenting in the exhibit hall of the conference. The first four interviews you'll hear are all from various artist-scientists we chatted with during the conference. First up is Laura Gurdon, who is a professor of earth science at Penn State Brandywine and who has taken up quilting scientific stories. She was also the chair of our presentation session, and that means she proposed to the organizers of the conference that there be a specific session set aside for storytelling and visual arts in education and outreach. Just want to say thank you again to Laura for accepting us. It was great to be a part of this e-lightning conference and to meet her and see your quilts. And we'll be putting them up on Instagram after we're done. But we're going to move ahead. And next up in our interview timeline will be Fernanda Yurson. She's a larval ecologist from Chile who has been using sculptures to communicate science. After Fernanda, we interviewed Drew Harvell, someone who Fernanda actually cites as being an influence to on her own work. Drew talks about the books she has written, 
and one of which takes the reader on a historic journey through antique blown sculptures of ocean animals, and how she studies the live versions of each glass sculpture to see how they, the actual animals exist in modern times. Finally, we have Tim Luker, a researcher at Scripps who engages with the San Diego community by teaching others how to create vibrant mosaic murals that capture stories of the ocean, from how local communities rely on it to how vital his and others' scientific research is. So let's head on into the San Diego Convention Center and listen to what these artists scientists have to say. just to represent getting the stories to the president. It's about any legislator. It's about any neighbor. It's about anyone that makes decisions about actions they take and what they do. Mm. Um, but then the clock fabric is because we're running out of time. time. We need, <laughs> need, we to need more of those clocks. We need yes. more time. <laughs> Gotta do it quicker. Yes, I bought a lot of the clock fabric. <laughs> the theme behind all of them now. <laughs> My name is Laura Gurton. I'm a professor of earth science at Penn State Brandywine, and I have a PhD in marine geology and geophysics and on the side I do some quilting. And so the story of my quilting actually goes back to 2018 when uh, LUMCOM, the Louisiana University's Marine Consortium, invited a group of scientists and a group of science communicators down to their facility. And they said, we really need some help because we need help telling stories of what they were calling coastal optimism, things of hope, things of positive uh, impacts that are happening on the coast. Instead of all the stories of doom and gloom, right? Everything yeah. is death, destruction, erosion, and all that. So what are the stories of adaptation and resilience? That's what they needed help with. And so we spent a few days going in the field, meeting with local residents, and, and I just felt like I needed to do something special and something different. So I could have done a blog post. I mean, I'm a blogger for AGU. I could have, I could have done a podcast. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, what is something that is different and unique? And so I was still thinking about this when the, the media was over at Lumcom. I'm on my flight uh, on the plane trying to get back to Philadelphia, seat belted in, and of course there's a weather delay because there's always a weather delay in Philadelphia. Then started the small talk with the woman sitting next to me, and she was a local person. And she said, Oh, what were you doing here? And I'm like, Lumcom, coastal optimism, blah, blah, blah. And she immediately gets excited and says, Christmas trees. She said, Christmas trees are awesome. <laughs> and I just kind of like got this really weird look on my face, I know, because it was the month of March, and she's all raving about Christmas trees. And I'm like, well, there's a story here, clearly, mm -hmm. that I don't know about. And so I went home and did some searching online and found out about how people in the, the coastal parishes in Louisiana mm. actually collect their old discarded Christmas trees at the end of the holidays and work with the Louisiana National Guard mm. and place them offshore, parallel to the shoreline, and have found ways to reduce the wave energy that is crashing into the shore, which mm. then is lessening the rate of erosion in, in the areas that they're being placed. So uh, so I went to the store, and after I learned that story, and, and it's all about fabric choice, too. Truly. This is, this is the hardest part for me, and the part I spend the most time on, getting the right fabrics. The fabrics tell part of the story. You don't want the fabrics too abstract or complicated, right? Because mm. you want the quilts to be accessible to all audiences. Mm. So... So it needs a little bit of explanation, but it's something that draws you in and you spend yeah. some time looking at and you're like, okay, I, I, I recognize that's water mm -hmm. and that's grass. And, that's grass and, right. and so where do we go? And the Christmas trees. 
Yep. Yeah. What I love are these lines. Are they out of necessity or are they out of... The gray lines are, are to help with the storytelling and to get you looking at pieces of time. I see. So it's kind of a time series through there. Very cool. Yeah. I'm going to be a little bit selfish. So I am a hot sauce enthusiast. And you were telling this story before. I was wondering... Oh, my God. So I was wondering if you wouldn't mind explaining this one as well. Sure. So okay. this was actually my second quilt was the Tabasco quilt. So when we got to Louisiana at Lumcom, their tables in their dining hall are filled with every variety and flavor of Tabasco. Mm -hmm. uh, and I noticed on the Tabasco bottle, on the label, it says Avery mm -hmm. Island, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, they're located there. And so... Uh, and so I looked it up a little bit and then learned about the challenges they're also having uh, remaining in this coastal community in, the, in that area. So I, I found this window pane pattern for the quilt in a quilting magazine. And so there's six mm. panels, if you will, in this window. Mm -hmm. So I have six individual pieces of the story. story I board. chose a red brick fabric for the border because all the buildings at the Tabasco factory are made of red brick. Uh, so, uh -huh. Beautiful. And then the purple and the green accents are to, uh, a, a shout out to New Orleans. Since those are our official mm -hmm. colors. <laughs> so the first window, you're looking at the logo for Tabasco. Uh, it's cracked, it's fragmented, and that just represents the physical stress that that environment is under. Mm. The second panel, you see this green dome with these salt crystals inside, mm -hmm. and you see what looks like water around it. That's representing the physical location of the Tabasco factory. It's actually located uh, 150 feet above sea level, which is pretty high for yeah. the coast, yeah. um, and, but it's on top of a salt dome. Okay. The third panel, though, you see a lot of construction equipment, and you see some canals. And that's because in this environment, being so close to the coast, there's been a lot of digging and dredging that's gone on to lay pipelines that are going on and offshore to bring materials back and forth. So it has destabilized the coast a lot, and it's allowed for more storm surges to come in. Panel number four of the window shows uh, what looks like a tsunami wave, but it's just representing... Just a regular... It's just a storm surge from Hurricane Rita. So when Hurricane Rita actually hit the area, it flooded their uh, storage facility, which was filled with wooden barrels that had mashed up peppers and what they call a salt mash. So after they grow the peppers and they mash them up, they sit in these wooden caskets for three years before they do the final processing oh to put them yeah. in the bottle. But they lost 60,000 wooden barrels from that storm surge. So there's an economic impact there, certainly, and, and their fact, their you know whole facility. And so they've got a choice: do they leave or do they stay? Now, you can't just pack up and leave, though, if you're using that salt, right? If right. that's the environment your family's been in for generations. And so what they did is we move on to panel number five. Uh, I have what looks like a, a mounded pile of dirt with a lot of grass around it. And that's to represent the earthen levees that they started constructing around the factory and uh, the natural cord grass native to that area that they used to stabilize it. Mm. They started working also with local organizations, with local residents, and actually helping to use natural resources and materials to help stabilize that area. And what they found was in the final panel, you see a bunch of pictures of animals like egrets and black bear and gators. Mm -hmm. uh, they were coming back and they're actually in that community again, which is where they were before. And so it's a wonderful kind of restoration and, 
and adaptation to an environment that is going to continue to get hurricanes. You can't stop the no. storms, but can you find a way to, to minimize and reduce that impact? And you said that you were partnering with a few entities to start presenting this? So, yes, I've been uh, looking at libraries, and I presented a couple of libraries. I presented at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia with them. Um, I'd love to get them out to other places uh, because I'm finding everyone has a blanket or a quilt story, whether it was a quilt their grandmother made or a blanket on their bed from childhood and the bright colors of the fabrics really draws people in. You don't have to be a scientist to get excited about a quilt. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I think it makes the science accessible. There's no graphs on here, there's no numbers on here, uh, but it, it's enough where you're gonna remember it and people are coming by and taking pictures. I'm gonna show my mom this. I'm gonna tell her to up her quilting game. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and so people are sharing it, which is what I want. I want certainly, people to talk about it and share it. It tells yeah. the story. Yeah. It is. Certainly. The quilt itself yeah. is a story. Right. right. And as you were the curator for our, our discussion, how, how, yes. did, how did that come to be? So I've been interested in finding other ways for us to be able to communicate science, partially because as, as a college instructor, I teach introductory level earth science classes for non-science majors. Mm. And so I can't use the jargon. I can't assume that I'm a priority in my students' lives. Yeah. I want them to be able to understand what I'm teaching and realize how relevant it is, how accessible it is to them, and why it matters. And so I'm always looking for what are different ways that I can engage and hook students uh, into my classes. And so that's where the idea of visualizations, the idea of storytelling, uh, has really become part of my identity as an instructor as well. Mm. So I've been spending a lot of time reading literature and, and putting into practice what uh, what I'm finding actually is clicking with my students. And so, uh, and I just want to find out what other people are doing too. There's some great things that are happening, and I don't think we have enough opportunities to come together as a community uh, to be able to share this, which is why I'm so excited at Ocean Sciences. Uh, when we proposed this session on storytelling and visualizations, we got so many abstracts <laughs> that came in. We had three sessions yeah. just for that one. So to have two e-lightings and a poster session was just beyond excitement yeah. that there's that many people that have that their own stories that they want to tell about how they're communicating science. Absolutely. So. If people wanted to find you or find out more about your work, where can they access that if they can? So yes, they can. So actually, I have, uh, I'm have i a blogger for American Geophysical Union at Geoed Trek, so they can go to the AGU website and look it up, or I also have a personal blog where all these quilts and their stories behind the fabrics are listed, and that's journeysofdrg.org. I'm Fernanda Yersun. I'm from Chile. I did my PhD in the United States in the University of Washington. I'm a biologist, study larval ecology, but I'm here in the Ocean Science Conference an art and scientist person. I did an artist at sea residency with the Schmidt Ocean Institute. There's a sculptor of me, of, of the work that I did there right now in the exhibit. And I'm also presenting the work of an interdisciplinary community that's called Ask to the First, that is a uh, um, interhemispheric, interdisciplinary community research network from people from Chile and the United States. 
How did you become a scientist? Asking questions, basically, and it's the same thing for artists. It's, for me, art and science is approaching the world, getting marvel at it, and starting to ask questions. And we get slightly different tools in the arts and the science to answer them, but they are so interconnected that I feel that nowadays we are starting to share more spaces that are interdisciplinary because we are getting these crave of trying to understand things deeper and there is urgent need to understand things deeper because of climate change and so many other things. What do you think about science history and were you influenced by anyone in the past of science and or art history? Oh, both. Uh, like from when I was little, I wanted to be like Leonardo da Vinci. And at that time, and something that is very interesting, I knew more about male scientists and male artists. And nowadays I feel so inspired not only by past artists and um, female artists and female scientists, but also from present, from Drew Harvell that is here in the conference and um, people like Rachel Carson that started the college movement and um, people that are maybe not um, that well known but are the artists and scientists that are less recognized and they're doing the small little work in their labs. So some systematic people that work identifying a species that is now is not that cool to be um, in that area. Those are the people that you go in and they have so much knowledge and they're teaching you about diversity and other things. So I can say there's so many people um, that that are interesting out there that it's 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 good to look at history. Um, we need to learn where we come from to know where we're going, and that connects with a lecture of last night also that was about navigation and the Hawaiian tradition. If there's one thing you could say to the general public about the science world or the art world, anything at all, what would you say? Approach, ask questions. I think that one of the things that I have found more, for example, about artists is that they don't know how to approach a scientist. And scientists, they don't know how to approach an artist. And people interest feel kind of a little bit embarrassed to arrive and ask questions. But most of the people that I know are really happy and passionate about what they do. So they're really happy to talk with you about things. Um, conferences, public speaking, science cafes, uh, podcasts like the ones that you have, is a way to start engaging. It's, it, this is part of our culture. Science is part of who we are, like asking questions about the world. So um, approach, uh, engage, participate. Uh, Drew Harvell, a professor in ecology and evolutionary biology from Cornell University. I'm here at the Ocean Sciences meeting, super excited to be part of this e-lightning poster session where I'm doing a poster on my book, A Sea of Glass, and augmented reality cards that we're handing out to people that allow you to project super cool, three-dimensional uh, marine invertebrates on your own phones. And uh, that's part of our Blaschka Glass Invertebrate collection, which I'm the curator of at Cornell. And my book is about using the glass made 160 years ago uh, to compare, as a time capsule, to compare with the living biodiversity of these 800 invertebrate, exquisitely cool glass models that they did 160 years ago. 
it's not a bad news story. You know that? It's actually, we're finding most of them. So that's pretty cool. We started this thinking, oh, man, we're going to have extinctions and we won't be able to find stuff. We're finding a lot of these invertebrates in today's oceans. So it's a real reminder of hope that there is so much that we can protect and enjoy in, our, in the living biodiversity in our oceans. How did you get into the field and how did you get into what you are studying right now? Well, I'm a marine ecologist and so, you know, I've been in the field for 40 years and uh, I guess a complete passion for marine invertebrates, for, for nudibranchs and squid and jellyfish and corals and um, my current work is focused on the health of ecologically important habitats and organisms in the ocean. So we study the health of coral reefs, we study the health of eelgrass beds, and we study uh, a big epidemic of uh, sea stars, which are keystone predators in the ocean. And that's the topic of my new book, Ocean Outbreak, that's just out this year. And what drew you to write a book? Well, the first book was A Sea of Glass, and it was about use our quest to go back and find the living biodiversity matches to the Blaska glass. And I guess it was just such an exciting project, and every time I found one of the matches, it was like this jewel in the ocean. Somehow, there's this magic about art, really beautiful art, somehow translates our understanding of nature and elevates it in some way, and that sounds crazy that I would ever need my understanding elevated, but somehow every time I find a match, it's this special thing that just expands my heart. So I wrote a book about that because it was just, our adventures were awesome, like in Indonesia and Maine and the Pacific Northwest, all these crazy dives to find beautiful invertebrates and film them in nature. Um, And then my second book, uh, Ocean Outbreak, is sort of the outcome of most of my research Uh, studying tiny monsters in the sea that are taking down our biodiversity, studying uh, outbreaks in nature, and, of course, trying to find solutions. And so the book is also not only about kind of the cool science of mm, chasing these outbreaks around the world, but also ideas that I have for ways we can make our oceans healthier. Any mentors you look up to? Oh, I have so many mentors. Uh, Well, of course, Jane Lubchenco, right? Mm. Because she is, you know, Dr. Hero Ocean Sciences, and um, she's just done so much to elevate the value of marine protected areas, which is one of our most important protections for ocean biodiversity. And then also she's, she's one of the people that really inspired me to think creatively about how we communicate issues about ocean science uh, that I, won't, I don't want to say it's not worth doing the research if you don't communicate it, but, but how much more important to be sure that the message gets out when you do some work. And so um, I've really taken that to heart. Tim Luker. Uh, my art students call me Dr. Tim. I'm a researcher at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in the CO2 Research Group. I came to Scripps in 1983 to work with Charles David Keeling, um, and I started by looking at the buildup of carbon dioxide in the oceans from fossil fuel burning uh, back in the 80s. That was the beginning of time series measurements we were making at different ocean sites, Bermuda, Hawaii, and and various places. 
Um, and then later on, of course, the Keeling Curve is a CO2 record at Mauna Loa that became rather famous over the years. Um, I graduated with a PhD uh, from Scripps in 1998, and then I did a postdoc with, with Dave Keeling's son, Ralph Keeling, and we were looking at other measurements of the oceans with atmospheric measurements of CO2 and, and oxygen to detect upwelling fluxes of CO2, oxygen, and, and N2O, which is another greenhouse gas. And then later on in my career, I took a break from science, and I learned to do mosaic arts. And I started getting involved with community projects and eventually working with teachers mm -hmm. and school kids, teaching them how to make mosaics. But one of my first projects was with a group of school kids in Rancho Santa Fe, California, who had just learned about coral reefs. So we did a mural of coral reefs. And in the process, I learned about how I could teach the kids about the marine ecology and what was going on with the coral reefs and they just love building octopuses and the fish and the crabs and all the different beautiful things that live on the reef and they actually got to the point where they identified so much that a kid would come up to me and say, oh remember me, I'm the octopus girl and I'm the, I'm the crab guy. And it was just, the enthusiasm was amazing and so it led to year after year more and more school projects, outreach projects. Uh, mosaic uh, workshops and and time after time people just love doing mosaics and so I started to realize working with all these people that this was just such a great avenue for outreach combining the art and the fun of building something out of pieces into this beautiful mural that it, it just became a very powerful tool and then in 2012 I went back to work with Ralph Keeling at Scripps and I've been there since and in the process, along with doing more and more of the research on what's happening with the atmosphere and the buildup of greenhouse gases and how that's translating into uh, ocean acidification and heat waves that are actually decimating some of the world's most beautiful coral mm. reefs, mm -hmm. it's just become more and more important to talk to people and to get them involved in thinking about these beautiful ecosystems that a lot of people just normally don't think about. So I think one of the most important things about researching the ocean is to, to understand and communicate to people on planet Earth what we're doing to the environment by burning fossil fuels and releasing all these gases that are then causing these dramatic and devastating changes to global communities, especially the coral reef ecosystems, which I love tremendously. So that's my story. Were you always interested in becoming a scientist? And then also, two parts, what led you to want to pursue artistry? I was sort of trying to pick between being a scientist and, and being a designer when I was early in my career. But mostly, I, I grew up in Michigan, but I was born in San Diego, and I really wanted to get uh, into a place where I could learn about the oceans because I heard about how great it was when I was growing up in the Midwest. So I initially went to study oceanography in Florida, um, and then, but ultimately I really w always wanted to come and work at Scripps. That was my, my dream job, and I never imagined that I'd end up being in this research group that would turn out to be so famous. So, so early on, it, I definitely was interested in chemistry and the oceans, and, and but I didn't know what it was going to turn into. I never imagined I'd be in a research group that was leading this sort of this investigation of how the whole world is changing mm. what's happening in the oceans from just you know burning all these 
uh, all the oil and gas and coal and releasing all these gases. And then the art thing was just at, at a point in my career where I was having a hard time with, with there were funding challenges and just felt like I wasn't really getting enough of my creative energy into my work. And it just sort of broke out of me one day and I had to try doing something else. And I, so I just, I learned how to make these murals with all these pieces of, you know, rejected, thrown away materials, stuff that probably was going to end up in a, in a landfill anyway. Mm -hmm. And turning that into something beautiful that could tell a story just became, and, and from what people say, you know, it's really beautiful stuff. So It is really beautiful, beautiful stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So that, to me, one of my great, the greatest thing about it is just seeing how people react when they see my work. It makes up for all the hours, painstaking hours and bruises and cuts and sore muscles from <laughs> cutting stone mm. and glass for hours at a time. So. Would you recommend scientists embrace art to convey their findings? Does, do you find it easier to talk about what you found through art? Absolutely. I think many scientists have already figured out that if, they have, if there's something that they like to do, they enjoy doing, and they can use that to help tell the story, mm -hmm. whether it's poetry or writing or music or painting or just any form of art that they can use to help you see people, when you start to just give them just full-on serious science about the, the critical crisis that's going on, you see their eyes just immediately glaze over, especially if you use a lot of terminology and big words that scientists, of course, love to do. And so to get them involved in a way where they can actually sense and feel things before they hear about them, I think it, it's really important to to do something to catch their attention. When they go walking by and they see this amazing picture of all these great looking fish, and they think, wow, how did somebody do that and take the time to go to, I mean, it, it just captures their, their attention and their imagination, and I think that opens the door to learning more about what's going on. So yeah, I think it's a great tool. Where can people find your work if you would like them to find your work? Uh, I have a website. If you just do a search on Dr. Tim Fine Art, all one word, dot com. And it's, it's, of course, in progress because, like everything else, I don't have time to. Um, <laughs> and then my daughter and I actually set up a project Instagram site. Okay. And it's called Mural Number Four Change. And I believe they've linked to it at the um, American Geophysical Union Instagram account as well with an, a short interview that they did with me. So you might be able to find it there. The artist scientists weren't the only engaging people we interacted with. We also took the time to head over to the exhibit hall, where around 100 different organizations and companies were presenting their products, engaging with potential employees, and just overall sharing their organization's mission with those interested in learning. We spoke to four different individuals, representing a diversity of organizations all committed to either preserving or learning more about the ocean. First up is Sean Newsom the principal for Shorebreak Tech, a consulting company providing aid to companies working with water. He has a stimulating story about how he came into this industry. 
Next, we interviewed Jeanette McConnell, the Education, Outreach, and Diversity Educator at CASE, C-A-I-C-E, who taught us a thing or two about aerosols and proves that you don't always need to know where you're going in high school to achieve great things later in life. Third is David Dia, an economist with a passion for the ocean who works promoting autonomous oceanographic vehicles used to study the ocean depths in many capacities. And last, but definitely not least, is Katrina Hoffman, who works for the Prince William Sound Science Center up in Alaska. And she talked us through how the center came to be and what it is currently focused on studying. Their booth also captured our attention by hosting a rousing game of putt-putt golf in which visitors could win a pop socket. Renee, of course, won one, <laughs> and I did not. You didn't even try. I tried a little bit. <laughs> so here, without any further ado, let's take a listen. Sean Newsom. Uh, I'm the principal of a company called Shorebreak Tech, and we do business development and consulting for what we call blue tech companies, which are anybody having to do with water, fresh or salt. Uh, so primarily I work with unmanned systems, being remotely operated vehicles, unmanned surface vessels, and uh, in this case where you met me today, an unmanned sailing vessel, which we call a semi-submersible sailing vessel. How did you get involved uh, in this line of work? I dropped out of UCSD where I was studying film to join the Navy because I wanted to find a very high-paying job that was dangerous because I was young and immature, and I found a very high-paying job that was dangerous in the Navy, so I went and did that for six years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when I got out, uh, as you used to do back then, I was looking in the classifieds in the back of the local paper, and I found a job at a company called Deep Sea Power and Light. And it was for $10 an hour assembling cameras and lights for robots, submarines, and divers. So I felt like, well, it's not the job I got offered that I turned down, because the pay was very low compared to the jobs that I was offered, but I didn't want to do those types of jobs. Um, but I thought, at least I'm back in the industry that I'm interested in, because I've been a waterman my whole life here in San Diego, surfer, body surfer, spearfishing, mm. boating, etc. And so I took that job, and that's really what launched my career, being around the right people, uh, doing the right things on the right projects. I got really lucky to just accidentally put myself in the right place. So at the time, uh, Deep Sea Power Light was working on all the lighting for all the Titanic documentaries and the James Cameron film. So uh, it helped me move from being a bench tech, doing soldering and potting cables to working in sales within just a few months. Uh, And other than a short hiatus to work in automation for better pay, I've worked in the maritime industries. uh, Other than that, six years, plus two years for a visual arts degree. Um, Since 1987, I've been working in the water or underwater. Do you draw any parallels between the art world and the science world? You seem to kind Uh, of dabble in both. Yeah, well, I did that on purpose because uh, I felt if I had a degree on both sides of my brain, I could win any argument. I also thought it was good for, not that I really want to win any argument, it was really good for sales and marketing. Um, but I do have an anecdote about that. I, one of the things I, we get, 
when I've worked in the past for bigger companies, now I work for myself. You know, I, would, I would give a pep talk to new, new engineers coming out of college. Uh, and so to me, the only difference between being an engineer and being an artist is an engineer has an objective purpose and an artist has a subjective purpose. So if you tell an engineer and an artist or a group of engineers and a group of artists to design a cube, the engineers are going to, each one of them independently is going to find a million different ways to get to the cube. None of them are going to use the same methods. They're not going to end up with the same drawings. They may not use the same software packages. But they will know when they're done because their drawing will match the description given to them for the cube. An artist has to decide when they're done with the cube. And only the artist knows when they're done with the cube. But they both are probably using the same tools and going through the same methodology. So I tell people the only difference between an artist and an engineer is one is objective and the other one's subjective. So someone looking to get into your field or your area, is there any one way to do it? Or would you say kind of, would you have any advice towards that? One thing you can do is, I mean, the most obvious things is blue STEM is a term that's real in education now. I, I sit on the advisory panel for Blue STEM for the San Diego Unified School District, for example, and they're using San Diego's ocean, kindergarten through 12th grade, and they're handing off the program through the grades so it's a contiguous or continuous process. Uh, and amazingly enough, over half of San Diego school children have never put their foot in the Pacific Ocean. So this is just ridiculous. So uh, one thing is, is, it, is to take uh, or participate in those kind of programs. Uh, and to, uh, it's not just that, but there's like the robo-sub competition which happens here. And I, you know, I go like I'm going to, f to football games. I mean, I, for me, it's just a highlight. Um, you have to, you know, pay attention to robotics. And uh, in my case, I have to know what's going on in robotics. Uh, and that happens across many industries. You know, it's in the automotive industry. So, uh, you know, in my case, it's basically just hanging out with the right people and reading the right stuff. Uh, I have a visual arts degree, and uh, I have a certificate in nuclear engineering from the U.S. Navy, so I don't even have an engineering degree, uh, technically. But I've probably, you know, uh, well, I'm comfortable saying I'm a subject matter expert in unmanned systems because I've been involved in it for so long, and, you know, a lot of people were self-taught. Mm. So that's where I come from. So I would say, really, you have to be passionate about what you're doing. I totally am. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know be around the right people. What have you seen change over the course of your tenure in this industry? Um, yeah. uh, we're really interested in the histories of things and how right now everyone studies with computers, but they didn't really have that back in the time. Has yeah. there been, as you're working on what you're working on, has there been vast changes and maybe what has been made obsolete? I think, I think that's a great question. I've I used to live in Ocean Beach, which is like uh, the Venice Beach of San Diego, and I remember being the only guy on my block who had the internet, and everybody came over to see what that was. And I got that because my boss put the internet in my house because I was willing to work at home. And okay. only because I wanted to get the internet for free. What and, year and was learn that? that? It was like 93, I think it was. Yeah, okay. And uh, so, in response to your question before I answer it, working in the type of technologies that I work in, we're pretty much way ahead of the curve, so I've got to experience a lot of technology early on. I, I owned the first digital camera that was available to the public, and I use it to do manuals for underwater housings of ca camera lighting systems. For me, the most disruptive thing that's happened is the, the cost of things coming down that make it possible for us to explore our oceans, which are, as we all know, that cliche, vastly un, unexplored, right? 
So that's what's really exciting, and that's what I focus on uh, with my business. I'm either working with such highly technical, uh, unique systems that they can, you can justify the price, but primarily I work with highly disruptive systems that are bringing the ability to do science to the masses because people can afford them. Why should we study the ocean? Uh, the ocean produces more oxygen than trees. So all through school, we all paid attention to photosynthesis, and all our teachers ever did was talk about the importance of leaves. And, but more oxygen comes out of the ocean than comes from the leaves, and we never got taught that, right? Um, basically, everything we eat is dependent upon the ocean. Uh, most of our rainfall, I'm not a scientist, but I mean, it starts with you know, condensation <laughs> off the ocean. Uh, and there's, you know, there's the classic cliche, what we don't know. And there's a whole bunch we don't know uh, about the ocean. I mean, ridiculously little that we know about the ocean that we're studying. But um, the ocean is a really good indicator of what we're doing to ourselves. Mm. So when we see things like the Pacific gyre and we see a swirling mass of trash the size of some United state in the United States, that makes it a little easier for people to maybe relate to all the trash that's in downtown San Diego that we don't see swirling in a big mass right now, right? So the, it helps us kind of understand, you know, the sciences a little bit too. But I, mean, I don't know, for me, it's exciting. It's, it's, I tell people it's, it's harder to go, in my opinion, to explore the ocean than to explore space. Uh, and the reason is, is because to go to space, you only travel through one atmosphere into a relatively sterile environment. When you're going into the ocean, you're traveling through an atmosphere about every three meters into a very caustic environment, yeah. at least for electronics. I find it quite refreshing and good for my complexion, right? But uh, so it's a very difficult proposition. That's why you read so much more about people developing spaceships than you read about people developing underwater spaceships for, you know, yeah. for, for layman's terms. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to do as well. But bringing down the cost of these technologies that let us do it is really helping. And watching kids have the passion about our environment and our oceans. At my age now, uh, you know, being a waterman my whole life, I'm even getting a little water guy just thinking about it. Uh, that makes me feel more comfortable in my, as, I, or as I age, that I, can, I feel comfortable that there are generations that are gonna start exploring the oceans, and I'm gonna get a lot of those answers that I don't have right now from, from our younger generation. Right, and what you're doing is making it more accessible to younger generations. It's just it's a pleasure. <laughs> can anybody contact you or contact your company, or can Absolutely. they find out more about what it is that you do? Absolutely, we'd be happy. Uh, my company is uh, Shorebreak Tech. Uh, a shore break is my favorite type of wave to body, body surf, so it's even tied into my company name. Uh, so shorebreaktechtech.com, uh, and you can, you, you can look me up there. So my name is Jeanette McConnell. And what brings you to Ocean Sciences 2020? Uh, yeah, so I'm here with the research center that I work for called the Center for Aerosol Impacts on Chemistry of the Environment. Worst name ever, but they study um, aerosols and they look a lot at sea spray aerosols. So all of the stuff that like flies off the ocean, and then look at how once it hits the atmosphere, what's the chemistry that's happening, and how is that impacting our environment? What brought you to join this? Oh uh, yeah. Um, so I have a PhD in chemistry. 
Um, but when I finished my PhD, I did not want to do research anymore, and I made a big shift into science education. And so I did science education for like K to 12 for a while, and now I've had the opportunity to come back into the university setting, and I work with this research center to bring their science to a wider audience. What are some important things I guess we should know going deeper into aerosols? Aerosols, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let's see, that they're everywhere. Um, one of the coolest things I think about is that at the center of like every single cloud, there's aerosols. Um, you need them to make clouds. You need water, aerosols, and a change in pressure. That's what this demo is here, where Ooh. I can make a cloud in a bottle. Um, but <laughs> there's lots more to do with them, right? And some aerosols, they kind of get a bad rap sometimes, but some are actually really good. You know, so over the Sierra Nevadas, in order for it to snow, you must have some aerosols there, and you need specific types of aerosols to make, like, snowing clouds versus clouds that are just, like, white and fluffy and don't have any precipitation. And so the group is studying some of that and then also looking at um, how it affects other things that happen in the atmosphere. And then last year, they actually took the ocean into the lab, so they there was, like, a 30-meter wave tank full of actual ocean water that they drug in from the Scripps Pier. And then they there was a big paddle in there, and it made big waves. And so they attached, a, because it was in the lab, they were able to attach really fancy instruments, like mass specs and things like that, to the, the tank that was full of ocean water. And so they could do really um, high-level instrumentation analysis in the lab on the ocean, which is something that's not really possible when you're, like, out at sea. So it was pretty cool. Yeah. It's like 100 researchers all working together on the project. That's so cool. How will this benefit us as a society, or how will this benefit in general? Yeah, so aerosols are one of the most poorly understood parts of our atmosphere, and it's specifically their effect on climate and climate change. Mm. Um, Their radiative forcing, meaning do they cool or heat the planet, is like a big, giant error bar, and so um, there's a lot of understanding that needs to still happen. And so that's what this center is for, understanding that really fundamental chemistry of those aerosols. How did you want to study what you were studying? Um, it was all just serendipitous. I like just got the opportunity to do a PhD and said yes, and then went <laughs> and did it. <laughs> so. Did you always want to study chemistry as a kid? No, no. Um, I, I mean, I did kind of like science. I liked asking questions, but I didn't know I would do chemistry. Um, I was actually, I did terrible in chemistry in high school and was suspended from the class, actually. It was like one of the few places I actually got in trouble um, and was, wasn't allowed to go a couple of times. And then now I have a PhD in chemistry. So I think it's a fun story, too, because you don't have to be good at it. You just, like, in high school, if you choose a different direction later, that works. Um, but yeah, it was all just opportunities come, came my way, and I said yes. And if there's one thing that you'd like the, uh, I guess, broader public to know about uh, this company and aerosols and what they can do to better understand it or be better for the planet? I think it's just to really pay attention to what people are saying about this and what their views are and then be open to always listening. Um, And when you have those conversations, I think just about talking about it, just talk about it. Everyone's going to have a slightly different viewpoint, and they may or may not, like, agree with you, but I still think we just need to start talking about this more, all of this stuff to do with science and the climate, um, and eventually we'll get to a place where the world is healthier. Mm. Yeah, fingers crossed. If you're an average layperson, how can they learn about the findings of what this business is doing? Oh, so we've got a website, yeah. okay. um, case at ucsd.edu. C-A-I-C-E-K. Yep, and then there's all of our information is on there. There's a little outreach section as well with 
some of the more digestible um, science information rather than just academic papers. So my name is David, David Dia. Um, I'm working with a company that is called Alcimar and we are here at Ocean Science Meeting exhibiting our products that are mainly related to autonomous vehicles that operate in the ocean in order to collect data in the ocean. How did you become involved with this company? <laughs> so actually I don't have like any either scientific or engineer background, I'm an economist. But at some point in my life I wanted to, to work on an industry that would be related to the ocean, to a marine environment, and that's how I... I got into the company. What made you want to do that? Was it anything in particular, any spark? I'm from an island on the Mediterranean, so I have been surrounded by the sea on my life. So I guess that what's, that's what brought me to, uh, to that industry, yeah. And so what makes your product special? So those are autonomous underwater gliders. So those are vehicles that are going to operate by themselves during long periods of time out on the ocean, like in coastal areas, in offshore areas, and they're going to be collecting data on a permanent way and fully by themselves. And it's like the fully by itself, it's important because uh, they're going to collect data on a very cost-efficient manner when you compare to other traditional data collecting methods. So, yeah. What kind of scientists use this in particular? What kind of data does it collect? Yeah, so I mean, actually there is a large range of sensors that you can integrate into this glider. Uh, so that's going to go like from uh, the classical sensors that are CTD, so to measure the temperature, the salinity, the density of water. So that's going to be used, for example, in, in physical oceanography. But in, in all the fields of oceanography, there are, those are variables that you want to, to have a, an understanding about. And you also have more sexy applications in a certain way, if I can say that, uh, that are going to be related, for example, to observing like zooplankton in the, in, the, in the water. So digital imagery of zooplankton in the water for people that are doing more ecology-related studies, so there is a large range of fields of study that you can study with those instruments. Katrina Hoffman. I work for the Prince William Sound Science Center in Cordova, Alaska. How did the center come to be? The center came to be when several community members in our commercial fishing town, which is home to a very lively salmon industry, salmon uh, commercial fishing harvesting, uh, they got together and said, you know, there's a lot of awesome ecosystems around here. They're unparalleled pretty much anywhere in the world, and no one's really intensively studying them, so it would be awesome if we at least got some baseline data um, or started understanding how things work here. And um, they got together for a few informal brown bag lunches to talk about this idea that they had. And um, at some point, the Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in our backyard. And they, uh, they quickly realized that there was not enough baseline data to do an effective damages assessment and went, wow, that was a good idea and it didn't happen fast enough. Um, but we still uh, incorporated a month later and um, we've been in existence ever since. And we're a nonprofit research and education institute. We do ecological research and STEM education. Um, we do education both within our community and around Alaska. So we send our educators out to other parts of Alaska to do things like 
um, oil spill response education. They get kids building remotely operated vehicles. They do, you know, leadership team building engineering exercises and also have to think about practical applications in the real world. Um, Alaska has more coastline than the entire rest of the U.S. put together. And most, many Alaskan youth live in coastal communities where things like oil spills are a threat. Um, that's not the only thing we focus on. We do um, oceanographic research in Prince William Sound in the northern Gulf of Alaska. We have a variety of different kinds of fisheries and avian ecology programs ongoing. Um, and the sky's the limit. We love partnerships. Um, we're soft money funded, so we've been successful for 31 years now at what we're doing. And we're building a new campus, which will have improved laboratories, running seawater, dormitory space, where people like faculty can bring their groups of students for field study programs, um, really in the home of the world's richest waters and in places where you can be on a glacier 30 minutes after you walk out our front door. And how did you become involved in all of this? I became involved because a friend of mine pulled an all-nighter in Antarctica looking for his next job. And he's, he found it at the Prince William Sound Science Center. And when my predecessor retired, he floated the position announcement to me and said, you should take a look at this. Um, I wasn't looking for a new job, and I'd never been to Alaska, so I didn't look at it. And a month later, he pinged me again and said, I'm serious. Uh, and I looked at it and said, well, holy crap, I'm going to have to get serious too. This looks like an amazing institution, and it is. Um, so we have about um, eight principal investigators with PhDs on our staff. We have a number of research technicians who have master's degrees uh, or undergraduate degrees, and we have an education staff, and then folks like AmeriCorps volunteers and interns and other general volunteers who help us carry out our mission, um, which is to advance community resilience and the understanding and sustainable use of ecosystems. What inspired you to go into this field? Right. Um, I had what was probably a somewhat typical path into science. I was a kid who liked to look at things close up. So when we went to the beach, I'd lie in the sand looking at the different shapes of clamshells for hours and collecting them and I was lucky enough to be a kid who was raised in the Washington, D.C. area, and my parents took me to the Smithsonian all the time, and I was obsessed with things like gems and minerals and, you know, you name it. I had my collections of stuff that I'd save my money up and spend them on, you know, buying samples and, and then organizing them. Um, so I was, I guess I had a systematic brain early on, um, and so I always made it a priority to focus on science. I had wonderful women science teachers in high school, and um, and I, I went to a college that my grandfather had attended, and it was inland in the middle of Ohio, even though I knew I wanted to be a marine biologist, and it just so happened that my advisor in Ohio had gotten his PhD at Stanford at Hopkins Marine Station, and um, his expertise was in the marine sciences, and um, he kind of helped guide me into uh, what I do today. So every every summer job, every study abroad opportunity I did as a, as a younger person, I made sure that it had a connection to marine or environmental science. Um, and I ended up getting an internship at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute the very first year that they ran their internship program in 1997. And I can see the man who chose me for the internship from this booth. He's two booths away. And we are still friends now. Um, almost 22 years later, and, um, and that experience changed my life. I did a lot of ship 
ship-based oceanographic research. I worked with some wonderful scientists, and um, several of whom are at this meeting, and kind of learned about what my natural inclinations and preferences were. Um, I taught marine biology for about a decade. I went into policy work and worked on uh, international sustainable shoreline development policy uh, on the West Coast and with Canada. And then um, I somehow managed to combine my ship-based oceanographic experience with my education and policy experience in this role as the director of an institute that does work relevant to all of those things. If you could offer any suggestions to up-and-coming scientists about how to pursue their career, what they should, I guess, do, any tips or advice? Um, One piece of advice I would have is don't give up. The science world is competitive, and it can be hard to find the right fit. Don't be afraid to talk to people, introduce yourself, try and try again. Um, Look for supportive advisors and people who will lift you up and boost you. Um, My college advisor... And I graduated from college more than 20 years ago. I'm still in touch with him. Um, He's almost 90 now. Same thing for the gentleman who selected me for a really competitive national internship. Um, I was lucky to get an NSF RU as an undergrad. I worked with awesome people there, some of whom I'm also still in touch with. So I feel like relationships and networking are important. But if you don't establish the right ones, there are more opportunities out there. Um, so how can people get in touch with you at the center or how, if they want to, I guess, reach out and come work with you? Is that an right. option? Take a look at our website, pwssc.org. stands for Prince William Sound Science Center. Um, you can watch some short films about um, our mission and the type of work we do. You can look at our staff list to see who's working with us. And you can look at other pages on our site that kind of exemplify um, the diverse array of research and education that we're involved in. And then just reach out to anyone you're interested in talking to. Um, We're all very approachable and uh, love to find ways to partner and connect, support undergrads, summer technicians, that sort of thing. you've enjoyed this edition of Lab Oratory Podcast. Stay tuned to listen to our second Ocean Sciences Special Edition, where we will highlight all of the scientific posters we were able to check out while at the conference and hear what each person had to say when we asked them the all-important question of why do we study the ocean? Stay tuned. But in the meantime, we are still a new podcast, so please support us. You can head on over to our Instagram and follow us at Laboratory Podcast. You can check out our Facebook page at Laboratory Podcast. You can visit our website at laboratory-podcast.com. You can check us out on Twitter, which I started at Ocean Sciences and is very overwhelming, at Laboratory Pod. Or you can feel free to email us at laboratorypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. And please stay tuned to see what we cook up next time in the lab. I'm Sam. I'm Renee. And this has been Laboratory Podcast. And this has been our latest lab notebook entry. Catch you on the flip side. 
So how do we make the cloud? Okay, so put some safety glasses on okay. I Also, I wanted to say that I love the fact that you're just wearing safety glasses on your head as yeah. well. <laughs> as if they are sunglasses? <laughs> Pretty much. Okay, so to make a cloud, you yeah. need three things, right? You need... Fresh water. Water. What else? Oxygen? Nope. No. Um, what am pressure. I talking all about? Aerosols. aerosols. <laughs> We're learning a lot here. I know. And, and then that's perfect. Five years old is a great age to be. Okay. And then you need a change in pressure. Pressure, pressure, pressure. Yeah, that's why we've got the bike pump. Yeah. So what we'll do is this goes on here. I'll hold this. So one of you just put your hand on the bottle. You do it. I want to take a picture of you doing it. Oh, here then. But we're going to need a hands. So oh, you? Okay. I can do this. Okay. It's fine. And so just pump five times. Oh, sorry. Okay, give me one more pump because I'm messing it up. One more. One more. Okay, now feel the bottle. Oh gosh. Okay. You ready? And then if I change the pressure really, pressure really fast, we'll get a Ooh. class. Ooh. Science. Yeah. <laughs> and this is what happens in the atmosphere. You get in water. You get aerosols, which is something for that water to condense onto, and then you get a change in pressure, and you get the formation of a cloud. That's very fun. Yeah, it's That's super a very nice fun. demo to have here.